Hello, welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. Extra, read all about it. Portland comedian Robert Gresham discusses the Roaring Twenties on Science Factual. Get your copy here, just a pair of pennies for the scoop on the greatest sci-fi of the decade. Oh, why, Barkeep, my robotic friend and I will have a pint of your finest ethanol as we crank up this week's episode of Science Factual on the Victrola. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and today we'll be ski bopping our way through the Roaring Twenties with a look at some iconic sci-fi literature and films coming out of the jazz era. Traveling with us is guest comedian Robert Gresham. We met up at the Tap That Showcase and open mic at Growler's Tap Room and Speakeasy in Southeast Portland. You'll also get a dose of the ha-has courtesy of Robert at the Helium Comedy Club, so make sure to stick around for that at the end of the episode. Before the acute blindness from drinking what is basically gasoline sets in, why don't we take a quick peek at the 1920s as a decade before the interview segment with Robert. I'll be getting more into the sci-fi side of things after the interview. That little ditty from 1926 was by Louis Armstrong in the Hot Five with May Alex called Big Butter and Eggman from the West. The 1920s was a decade that began on January 1st, 1920 and ended on December 31st, 1929. Gotta love Wikipedia contributors for stating the obvious just for the sake of word count. In America, it is frequently referred to as the Roaring Twenties or the Jazz Age, while in Europe, the period is sometimes referred to as the Golden Twenties because of the economic boom following World War I. French speakers refer to the period as Année Folle, or the Crazy Years, emphasizing the era's social, artistic, and cultural dynamism. The 1920s saw foreign oil companies begin operations in Venezuela, which became the world's second-largest oil-producing nation. The devastating Wall Street crash in October of 1929 is generally viewed as a harbinger of the end of the 1920s prosperity in North America and Europe. In the Soviet Union, the new economic policy was created by the Bolsheviks in 1921 to be replaced by the five-year plan in 1928. The 1920s saw the rise of radical political movements, with the Red Army triumphing against white movement forces in the Russian Civil War and the emergence of far-right political movements in Europe. First wave feminism made advances, with women gaining the right to vote in the United States and Albania in 1920 and in Ireland in 1921, and with suffrage being expanded in Britain to all women over 21 years old later in the decade in 1928. Most independent countries passed women's suffrage after 1918, especially in recognition of women's support in the war effort and endurance of its deaths and hardships. 
The Roaring Twenties brought about several novel and highly visible social and cultural trends as well. These trends made possible by sustained economic prosperity were most visible in major cities like New York, Chicago, Paris, Berlin, and London. Quote, normalcy returned to politics in the wake of hyper-emotional patriotism during World War I, jazz blossomed, and Art Deco peaked. For women, knee-length skirts and dresses became socially acceptable, as did bobbed hair with a finger wave or two. The women who pioneered these trends were frequently referred to as flappers. The era saw the large-scale adoption of automobiles, telephones, motion pictures, radio, and household electricity, as well as unprecedented industrial growth, accelerated consumer demand and aspirations, and significant changes in lifestyle and culture. The media began to focus on celebrities, especially sports heroes and movie stars. Large baseball stadiums were built in major U.S. cities, in addition to palatial cinemas that focused on being as ornate as possible. In the United States, the prohibition of alcohol began January 16, 1919, with the ratification of the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, effective as of January 17, 1920, and it continued throughout the 1920s. Prohibition was finally repealed in 1933. Organized crime turned to smuggling and bootlegging of liquor, led by figures such as Al Capone, boss of the Chicago outfit. You see? The Immigration Act of 1924 places restrictions on immigration. National quotas curbed most Eastern and Southern European nationalities, further enforced the ban of immigration of East Asians, Indians, and Africans, and put mild regulations on nationalities from the Western Hemisphere, i.e. Latin Americans. The major sport was baseball, and the most famous player, of course, was Babe Ruth. The Lost Generation, which characterized disillusionment, was the name Gertrude Stein gave to American writers, poets, and artists living in Europe during the 1920s. Famous members of the Lost Generation include Cole Porter, Gerald Murphy, Patrick Henry Bruce, Waldo Pierce, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound, John Dos Passos, and Sherwood Anderson. A peak in the early 1920s in the membership of the Ku Klux Klan of 4 to 5 million members after its reemergence in 1915 following the release of Birth of a Nation was thankfully destined for a rapid recline down to an estimated 30,000 members by 1930. The Scopes trial in 1925, which declared that John T. Scopes had violated the law by teaching evolution in schools, creating tension between the competing theories of creationism and evolutionism, took place, which was a defining lawsuit of the decade. Organized crime truly got its legs during the decade, with the culmination of violence occurring with the St. Valentine's Day massacre perpetrated by Al Capone's enforcers against Chicago's Northside Gang in 1929. Bootlegging was the name of the game, along with importing during the 20s, and with the invention of the Thompson submachine gun, or Tommy gun, people were killing each other more than ever for a slice of that sweet American pie. In Europe, things were heating up after the First World War as well, with the Russian famine of 1921 to 1922 claiming up to 5 million victims, which resulted in the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or Soviet Union, in 1922. Benito Mussolini, leader of the National Fascist Party, became Prime Minister of Italy, shortly thereafter creating the world's first fascist government. The fascist regime establishes a totalitarian state led by Mussolini as a dictator. The regime also restores good relations between the Roman Catholic Church and Italy with the Lateran Treaty, which creates Vatican City. Mussolini's regime pursues an aggressive expansionist agenda in Europe, such as by raiding the Greek island of Corfu in 1923, pressuring Albania to submit to becoming a de facto Italian protectorate in the mid-1920s, and holding territorial aims on the region of Dalmatia in Yugoslavia. In Germany, the Weimar Republic suffers from economic crisis in the early 1920s and hyperinflation of currency in 1923. 
From 1923 to 25, the occupation of the Ruhr takes place. The Ruhr was an industrial region of Germany taken over by the military forces of the French Third Republic and Belgium in response to the failure of the Weimar Republic under Chancellor Wilhelm Kuno to keep paying the World War I reparations that were very much due. The recently formed fringe National Socialist German Workers' Party, aka Dem Nazis, led by Adolf Hitler, attempts a coup against the Bavarian and German governments in the 1923 Beer Hall Push, which fails, resulting in Hitler being briefly imprisoned for just one year, where he writes his breakout smash hit, Mein Kampf. In Asia, the Chinese Civil War kicks off in 1927, and in Africa, Pan-Africanist supporters of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, aka the UNIAACL, are repressed by colonial powers with interests on the continent. Garvey's organization supported the creation of a state led by black people in Africa, including African Americans. All that is to say that typically the thought is that after World War I, there was nothing but post-war economic boom, and that the peace was disturbed by the new baddies from the first conflict and capped by the worst financial crisis of not only the decade, but up to that point in history, Black Tuesday. And that perception is certainly watered down through glossed over mentions of an otherwise incredibly important and formative decade. For instance, the 20s truly saw for the first time what mass-produced literature and radio broadcasts could provide to the people in ways of conveying new scientific ideas, inciting and propagating new political ideology, and telling stories about the rapidly changing and newly emerging technological world around people who still very much grew up in the previous century. Here are just a few major tech additions to come from the 1920s. John Logie Baird invents the first working mechanical television system in 1925, and again in 1928 he invents and demonstrates the first color television. I honestly didn't think the color television was invented that early. I thought it was like in the 50s or 60s. Warner Brothers produces the first movie with a soundtrack, Don Juan, in 1926, followed by the first part talkie, The Jazz Singer, in 1927, the first all-talking movie, Lights of New York, in 1928, and the first all-color, all-talking movie, on with the show in 1929. Silent films started giving way to sound-based films, and by 1936 the transition phase arguably ends with Modern Times starring Charlie Chaplin, which is heralded as being the last notable silent film, but we'll get further into that with the next decade dive. Carl Ferdinand Braun invents the modern electronic cathode ray tube or vacuum tube in 1897. The CRT became a commercial product in 1922. Record companies such as Victor, Brunswick, and Columbia introduced an electrical recording process on their phonograph records in 1925, resulting in a more lifelike sound. And the first selective jukeboxes are being introduced in 1927 by the Automated Musical Instrument Company. Harold Stephen Black revolutionizes the field of applied electronics by inventing the negative feedback amplifier in 1927. Clarence Birdeye invents a process for frozen food in 1925. Robert Goddard makes the first flight of a liquid-fueled rocket in 1926. And last but certainly not least, in 1928, Alexander Fleming discovers penicillin. Thanks Satan for that. Oh, uh, hey there, pal. Did the shipment of strawberries come in? I need to inspect them, see? That's code for Let's Check Out This Interview with guest comedian Robert Gresham. Okay, buddy. Your brights are on.
Ooh, yeah, like seven lives in the front of them. Like, all right, live forever. I, I never understood that. You know, like people who have the the bar lights. It's like, dude, you live in Southeast Portland. Yeah, like, it's like, what, what are you worried about driving over? Yeah, like, what, nothing is in the road. So it's strange. None of what Mad Max situation are we having? <laughs> I, I know that things are great in Portland, right. but you know, it's not like it's so crazy. So, so wow, welcome to this. I grew up in this town. I'm actually from here. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah, a lot of not a lot of people are from Portland. Yeah, yeah. No, so I'm always like, wow, man, I I'm from here. So like when you like. Kiss this city's ass. I'm like, how nice it looks. Like, no, it's gone downhill. But I love the town. I this is where I grew up. So, like, every little part that changes, I'm like, I notice it and won't enter the changes. But at the same time, I'm like, ah, you know, it's got something's got to happen. Yeah, and I mean, I moved here for a reason. You know, like it was uh, 2011. I just came up from California. I'm one of those transplants. Oh, um, I'm from. I, I was born there too. So okay. I guess technically, I'm one of them. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, when you're here, my dad brought me. It's not my fault. He wanted to sell weed here. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Funny guy. Just dead, though. So it's good. Okay. Right now on. you talk all the mad shit about Nice. Him. It was like right when he was about to, he was, when he was dying, he's like, that Donald Trump has a bunch of good ideas. And uh, like, oh, let's just go. Let's go. Go, go, go. It's like, let's, yeah. That's why I was like, never worried about the COVID thing. It was like, mm-hmm. aren't they just gonna kill everyone like Donald Trump like fuck it right let's don't wear masks at all don't wear them yeah go out and don't wear them it's like they're all coming out like ah he's got some good ideas (laughs) sir coffin you're like yeah you're right grandma tell me more tell me keep talking keep talking breathe in all the take all the oxygen well I thought that COVID was going to do the most at curbing this population but we still clearly need stuff like cancer in the driver's seat so, folks, the the voice other than my own that you're hearing here, this is Robert Gresham. Hi, Robert. Hey, everybody. Yeah. What's up, man? Uh, not much. I'm like, happy to be here. Yeah. Love the show. I've listened to it a couple times. Right? I'm really into it. Thank Love you. Love the Akira episode. Not just because I hate Gene DeWeber, but because I was like, yeah, I love Akira. That's a really good, I wish they could, I don't want to say update it, like, because I would hate for Netflix to fuck that one up. Ooh, but yeah. uh, I don't know if you could. I mean, they could do a live action of it with this. I actually liked huh? Cowboy Bebop. I didn't hate it. Okay. Because I like what the, even though the creator doesn't like the show, Cowboy Bebop is a genre. It's not a specific storyline. It's fair. a genre. Yeah, fair. And so I looked at it like old John Woo jazz when you're like watching sure. Giant Fat in movies or like just this laid back version of like barely contained violence. I'm covering this with Jeff Morris in, oh, okay. in an episode coming up soon. So I'm, I'm just going to make you an old die. No, that's great. So before we jump into the whole decades dive thing, Robert, what's your Instagram? Um, it's it's Rob Seagrushing uh, Comedy or Rob Comedy. Someone else has an uh, Instagram very close to mine. All right, we cross over sometimes. Ah, gotcha. Okay, like, have you is has that started like a pen pal style relationship with the yeah, like oh, yeah, like, okay. This feels like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I love Seinfeld. Like, that's who knows that? It's the structure of those talking about your structure of your episode. Even like, I love Seinfeld, but uh, I've met a lot of different comics just through either talking about my son's uh, individual handicap or even with my last name. Because when you look up Gresham, you'll find about. Five or six dudes from Tennessee that just look like they run a lawyer's firm. <laughs> like Gresham and Gresham. Yeah, they're like Gresham and Gresham. So Gresham. Yeah. And they're like, they obviously <laughs> have like their own tiny town that they run all the rules. Also called Gresham. And then you'll have about 30 dudes under that who are like, yeah, I'm Gresham, but like from the hood. Right, uh, and so I'm like, it's it's a name that transcends everywhere, I guess. I don't know. I looked it up. It was just an English name. 
Right. I mean, you were a dumb, like the guy from Gresham. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, like Joe no. Vinci is like, he's like from Vinci. Yeah. Or like a tanner because his whole family were tanners. Oh, yeah, definitely. And yeah. Based off rock. But there's not like an act of Greshaming. No, no, not at all. <laughs> so, like, I was surprised when I was I'm not sure, like, that guy's Greshaming really hard right now. I was like, he's been on a D&D bender for like six days. <laughs> yeah, I played D&D. Like, I, it's one of my old jokes, but like, when I first got into D&D, it was just, a, you know, another kid in school who he didn't have friends and we could make up this world together. Nice. But yeah. his name was also Rob. Yeah. So it was like, I'm Robert, he's Robbie. Mm. And then the kid across the street from Robbie was named Rob. He was our dungeon master. So was he Bob or Bobbert? Did you... No, he went by Rob. Oh, it was Rob, Robbie, and Robert. Okay. And then Rob made us That's like an shirt sauce. It's like an Ed, Ed, and Eddie situation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. Uh, so speaking of being all over the place, I want to tell you about an encounter that I had. I, oh, I, I encountered an, uh, a hyper nerd in the wild. Oh, uh, <laughs> nearly your caliber. He's been playing D and D for the last twenty five years, and I know that you've got him certainly beat on that because you. Yeah, I've definitely got that beat. You published like four dozen, if not more. Yeah, I've got a lot of books. It's one of those things that I don't always give myself credit for because, mm. like, I identify as a dad because once I became a dad, that changed my whole outlook on how I'm operated life okay so i think that's what that means too and at the same at the other angle with being a gamer and being from portland mm -hmm. like and this is the portland part of me guys out there our listeners i always saw such inclusivity with D. &D. so as it stands you might be more of a fantasy nerd than a sci-fi nerd but yeah. like what was your first exposure to science fiction um Probably Star Wars. Nice. Um, I think I was was maybe five, six. I was in the emergency room with my mom. She was having one of the multiple children she has. Mm. I have um, 10 brothers and sisters, and all of us have kids. You Catholic? Uh, we were until my grandpa died. Yeah. And once my grandpa died, my mom was like, we're free. I'm we like, whatever we want. <laughs> so, I'm kind of continued. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we know. That's all we know. That's what we're At that point, it was like, ah, they're, we're all dumb. So we're like, I guess have kids. <laughs> You know, um, but I think I was in the emergency room and I could see uh, the third one, Return of the Jedi, up on the, the, the hospital screen. I'm like, oh, and he walks and stuff. That's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. And so I got into Star Wars because of that. And that's what led me into liking a lot of other sci fi, totally. just the visuals. Yeah. Star Wars is a gateway sci fi property. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I firmly believe that. But yet, at the same time, like you were mentioning, is a lot of fantasy. So, yeah. like, even with my fantasy group, it is a space I like, kept me. In that same spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there was a lot of fantasy that was coming out around the same time as the uh, the first, you know, well, I guess, it, what was it, 77 through 83 mm -hmm. was when Star Wars came out. I mean, there was a lot of pretty epic fantasy that came out in that realm, too, because oh, pra practical uh, effects were really ramping up in something. Close Encounters, absolutely. So I just covered Nope, okay. Julian Gray, oh, and okay. the awesome movie. Options. Talk about a psychological thriller that has that component because oftentimes I liked like, it better than Get Out. I thought it was so much more layered. Yeah, you know, it's like I love the strange angle. I love the, mm -hmm. the angle of like dealing with Hollywood and they were being displaced, like from being these old horse ranchers to like the way the new. Anyway, the, you you went over the episode. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. just deep and awesome, and I agree. It's just so a fantastic film. You know. Yeah, absolutely. it was nope. Like, did you get to discover like uh, not of planet Earth? It's an acronym that yeah. can, that could stand for that, but uh, yeah, Peel himself was like basically it's like you know any audience would be like nope, like yeah, yeah. I'm out about it. 
not not into it. It's such a <laughs> key into that meme culture that we're into right now. Like, I think he's really hit what scares people. Like, so I, I, I am interested to see what Jordan Peele is able to bring more of. Like his, um, I think I hinted at a little bit last time we talked about the Twilight Zone. I didn't think he was able to, because that's just like an old property that he was reinventing. Sure. And I'm like, well, I want to see what your take on what where society is going now, because we're not there anymore. We're, we're in somewhere else. Yeah. Like, and not to circle this back to the 20s. No, we're in an excellent more different place than yeah. used to be there. Well, we're, so, I mean, we, we are literally talking about 100 years ago. Yeah. We're going to jump right into it because my next question is like, what is your first exposure to literature or films from the 20s? Okay. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sci-fi because there were properties that existed leading into this. Oh, definitely. But it, it doesn't really become a genre until like the first dedicated science fiction magazine was Amazing Stories in 1926. Right. So it wasn't really until the decade was well underway that the term science fiction really becomes like a household name, or at least among like the the, the younger population that was getting pulp magazines or rather boosting pulp magazines. So sometimes you have to place a science fiction lens on certain things. Oh, yeah. Um, And science fiction, that lens that you're talking about, has always been a way to like explore what's actually going on in our current society, but in a different way that we can almost extricate ourselves from I hope I said that word right no you got it you fucking landed it and you and that's a, that's the a attic point. reminds me of that like when you're yeah. in the attic you're like wow this is where we could go or even Possibly. demolition man I never know like that's the future we ended up getting out of all the possible ones it was demolition man yeah like I saw look at Detroit and Robocop yeah. I mean they basically nailed it I know man it's crazy <laughs> But yeah, I liked the garb for sure in Robo or uh, oh, Demolition Man. I want to get some of those kimonos. Yeah, yeah, nice. They were sick. Back to the twenties question. I think my first real exposure to nineteen twenties like science fiction came because of Metropolis. Yeah, um, I was about ten, maybe eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived here in Portland, and one of the video stores we had, Video Rama, which prior to Video Rama was called Video Chest, and they put up a poster, Video uh, Metropolis, coming out. In next week, right? And I'm 10, and this is back in like 89, 91, right? And all I see is a metallic C3PO looking bitch on his poster, right? And I'm like, oh, Star Wars. And like my dumb 10 year old mind goes, this is a Star Wars movie or something like that. I want this. They're telling me at the camera, like, no, no, Robert, this is not Star Wars. This is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. No, my autistic brain is like, I, 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 I'm already decided that's my this is what I'm watching. Yeah. So the day it comes in, they give me a call, and they're like, all right, Metropolis is here. Now, I pick, I go over, and I get the videotape. And this is, if for anyone who's familiar with Metropolis, there's a couple versions of this movie. And that's because over the years, they kept finding pieces of it, right? Right, yeah. So um, I watched a 91-minute version of Metropolis, which was the re-edited version for America. Then that version, which I didn't understand much as a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. watching going like, oh, this is Star Wars old. If you're not familiar with the concept of, or the story of Metropolis, it's basically a guy one day goes down throughout the, the city of Metropolis, this beautiful utopia. And as beautiful is a key word because everyone is hot. Every, all the style is fucking on point. Above ground. Above ground. Everyone's beautiful <laughs> above ground. He actually goes down below ground and sees these workers who I think in the, in the movie are called the Hands. And um, they're like just making shit at this machine. He's like, yeah. he doesn't know what's going on. He gets all scared. And then, well, he's thinking of hands. The guy is like trying to move them to match the lights yeah. for whatever yeah. arbitrary yeah. reason. Yeah, I want to flip into that when you talk about fantasy because yeah, like, okay. Metropolis. Like a lot of people want to go. This is the granddaddy of 
of science fiction movies. This is what sci-fi is about. As a, as, a sto- as a story arc, potentially. But, well, this is, it's richer in science fantasy, so hardcore that nobody realizes. Okay, so we got the D&D movie coming out. Yeah. We got the novelization of the movie coming out, like Honor of Mugs Thieves. Right? Back when I was 20, we had Hook, you know, the novelization of Hook, and I watched, I read that, you know. So you, you constantly get novelizations of movies. Well, when Majopolis first came out, they had a novelization at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was yep. one of the first things they ever did. Theobon Harborough wrote it, right? Yeah. 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 His wife, uh, out of his girlfriend, his wife. His wife, yeah. All right. And uh, Fritz uh, Lang, a lot of people are like, ah, this dude, he fucking, he, he made this cool expressionist movie. Like, well, his wife was real psycho at the time. And when she wrote this, it was way more fantastical. It's it, filled yeah. with so much occult shit, it like was, witchcraft. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, fir- the first cut, if you will. Yeah, if you watch the movie. Like the cutting room floor version is is a lot more fantastical. And you see that with, like, the, the pentagram. Yeah. And when the, the, the robot is being made, there's a pentagram above his head. It has a lot of imagery. Uh, as when he first goes underground, he sees all the workers being fed to this giant beast. It's actually a, um, an effigy of Moloch. Moloch and this right. wording comes up, Moloch. Moloch, yeah. Right? And I'm like, that's a dude back... And feeding workers to like this iron machine is is the is also the lore of Moloch being this old iron bull. Then the people would feed slaves into this iron bull statue that would like, as the flesh started burning and then the dudes were dying, and somebody would whistle after the fucking thing. So like, oh, the the horns. Yeah, that's a, that's a, an old school Greek like. Yeah, so Moloch. Oh, so nerdy. In the book had more shit. Like, boiled alive in that fucking thing. Yeah, oh, like in the so movie, nerdy. he's got this cool. I'm trying to remember his name, but he his basically his dad runs the city. And when he runs the his son of the dad goes underground and he sees like, Oh, this place is all jacked up. Yeah. Oh no, I'm seeing these images of like the workers being sacrificed to giant monsters. Yeah. Right. And you don't Fre- quite understand what they're even making. It's Freiderson and Freiderson's son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the book, Freiderson totally knows what's cracking. And what's funny is um You mean the older Freiderson. Yeah, the dad. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's more insidious in the novelization. Oh, definitely. It's it's really clear in the in the novel that the dad is in on it. He knows what's up. He's playing in the witchcraft area. His house is protected by like sigils of Satanism. Tight. Like legit is like this is the sigil of Satan protecting my house from people being a little fucking burning down and shit so that the workers don't come and burn my house out. I need to read it. I mean, it's like, because I, I would love to oh, see how it varies from the film, because the, the film is not necessarily open to interpretation, but it is put through this, like, Germanic, semi-utopian lens, right? Mm. Where it does have, like, you know, views of the working class, or I hesitate to say proletariat, because that's more of a communist. Yeah, there's like a Marxist. Yeah, that is a Marxist to the film. I would say overtone. Oh, definitely. If you get the right, tr- like what I was saying when I saw that it's 91 lenses, cut, that 91 minute yeah. cut made it look like, fuck these weird troll people. And I'm yeah. like, oh, okay. Right. As a 10 year old, I'm like, ah, it's not Star Wars. But as like 20 year old, 30 year old, whatever, later when I watched More Metropolis, and I got the Criterion one, I was like, this ain't the same movie I saw. This movie is like 30 minutes longer. All of the workers, you could see that the different, uh, the more of the Marxist angle. Yeah. Because that original 19. I want to say 89 videotape that I got mm. from the video store was so short. It was 91 minutes. And this other one was like two, 
two hours. It was like 153 minutes. Well, that is such a difference. In the early 2000s, they I know they found a bunch of yeah the 16 millimeter stuff. So they added that in, and it was yeah because that's there's a lot of like frame size or dimension changes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the satanic imagery, can we get a hail Satan real quick? For oh yeah, how's that? Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Great. Um, so do you have a favorite publication house? Because I know you've been reading a lot of HP Lovecraft yeah. and Weird Tales. Well, Lovecraft, he he got into my my psyche slash typewriter around the same time that I watched Metropolis. I'm sure it was the twenty. So by that ten year old, eleven year old, I was really impressionable. Yeah, and I had a friend at um, school, and he was really he was really an Edgar Allan Poe. Nice. And for some bizarre reason, he would like say the Raven every day at school into my ear like a fucking psycho until he became my dungeon master. And <laughs> he'd be the best <laughs> nice. guy ever. Nice. But uh, he he's the one who introduced me to all that stuff, and he flipping over Zeppelin too, and just as the for all of our like liberal guys out there, because I'm left to fucking center. Like, trust me, guys. Mm-hmm. He was that Republican guy that I could always. He knew that it was bullshit. His dad was preaching like racism, kind of fucking Tennessee shit, and yet this dude was teaching me how to like become an orc and learn what it was to be different. And so I was like this nine-year-old, I was 10-year-old, I was learning like, just because I'm an orc, you're going to treat me like shit. Mm-hmm. And I never got that from anywhere else, but I got it from D&D, from a guy that seemed right from Reagan, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet later he was like, no, I know what's up. This is bullshit. Nowadays, I can be like, he's the Republican that was like, he's religious Republican, not Trump Republican. Mm-hmm. He's the Republican that told me, he's like, I can't vote for that dude because he's a... Uh, Keep wife. Yeah, right. Was, oh, so I was like, dude, that's gross. Uh, I'll cheat on my wife all the time. <laughs> well, but you're not running for office, Rob. At least he's a principle-based Republican. I don't know. By the way, Republicans, if you go far enough left, you get your guns back. Yeah. So, you know, come on over. The water's warm. <laughs> I'm uh, saying I'm not worried about guns yeah. at all. I just want you to, like, fucking have a permit. <laughs> like, I don't care if you Yeah. Just proving how to use it. Yeah. Thank you. Or just be safe about yeah. it. Yeah. So I don't like the new law where you have to go through the government to get the gun. Because they're like, the government's like, why would I give you the gun? I'm the government. I don't want you to have it. Like, oh, yeah. That's right. Like, yeah, I'm not going to give you the gun. You know, fuck. Well, uh, get them for private sales while you still can, yeah. folks. Speaking of weird things, uh, the first issue of Weird Tales, for instance, mm-hmm. is dated uh, March 1923 and appeared on newsstands in uh, February yeah. of that year. But the first editors are printing work from like H.P. Lovecraft, Seabury Quinn, and Clark Ashton Smith. All of whom went on to be popular writers, but within a year, uh, they were hitting financial trouble. However, Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos stories first appeared in Weird Tales with the Call of Cthulhu in 1928, and that basically revived the whole series. Yeah. So all hail Cthulhu. And then, I mean, I'll praise the Dark Lord, but at the same time, I know that the editor of Weird Tales wasn't really into Lovecraft. Mm. Kind of, I think Com- that's why Schweitzer was a dick. <laughs> yeah, it seems now, Lovecraft was not a friendly person. Oh, and it had a lot to do with he was agoraphobic, he was xenophobic, mm. which those two things combined are going to make you a piece of shit. They probably they usually go hand in hand. Yeah, it's like if you don't like going outside and you hate anybody that's not the same race as you, you shouldn't really exist. I mean, in, in uh, <laughs> modern times. So he, yeah. And he wouldn't have said that. He's like, I'm an old, I'm an Even 100 old. years ago. Yeah. He's like, yeah, two, 100 years ago, he was like, I am not even modern for this time. I need to be 100 years older than this. Yeah. They're like, okay, creep. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, but at the same time, he gave us this, like, awesome mythos that we still use to this day. And, like, True. people like to call it Lovecraftian, 
Yeah, his his mythos. I I think cosmicism is a better word for it. Oh, because the only way to like differentiate it from Lovecraft, because and I think I mentioned this before, they like with like J.K. Rowling, you can like a creation of an author and hate the author. That's just fine. Lovecraft was not a great man. Like if we were to relook at what he his thoughts were in this day and age, we're like ah he was hateful. He did not like foreigners. His aunts, who, uh, his mom and his dad went crazy. His dad actually died in an insane asylum. His mom was all fucked up on laudanum and gave him over to his aunts. And his aunts would beat the shit out of him all the time and talk like, we're like ma- major uh, pro-Christian stuff, yeah. which he didn't get from his mom and dad because they were crazy. So it was like the- Out of left uh, field kind of- Yeah, I was like, yeah, where does this lore came yeah. from? And that's why he didn't believe in where lore and- um, Religion and all of a sudden became kind of a fantasy team. That's well, why he created his own. It is fantasy. It's it, the world, world. But we gave it all for definitely from the author and like his stuff. Yeah, that's true. And laudanum, laudanum is such a turn of the century drug. Definitely. Uh, so, like, what is it? Just cough syrup, like sipping on syrup? <laughs> that's what yeah. laudanum is. Like, yeah. hey, it's, 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 the, it's the hundred years ago version of sipping on syrup. We we also got like uh, Robert Block out of that, who wrote Psycho Leader in the next mm. decade after that. Um, I want to say you probably even got Robert E. Howard stories who like, I think in one of your questions, you're like, what are you reading now? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm actually reading more 30 stuff at the moment because I'm reading a lot of Coney. The oh, sure. Yeah. We're in Sarah's. Uh, yeah. But also Lovecraft because his mythos transcends into that. Like he was a guy that back, which I like as a creator going, Hey, take my stuff and extrapolate on it. And like, like build upon this stuff. And in the twenties, there were so much new things. Thinking about aliens, that was different. Thinking about robots. Uh, radiation, robots, that was all different. Well, Rossum's Universal Robots in 1920 is a science fiction play by Czech writer Karl Kapik, mm. and uh, it stands for Rossumovi Universalini Robati. And basically, it's from 1921, it introduces the word robot to the English language. Mm. I mean, and to science fiction as a whole. Kind of because like Weird Tales is is a little bit more fantasy as a whole. Yeah. So like bringing it back to sci-fi, Amazing Stories is the first truly science fiction magazine uh, serial, which was launched in April of twenty six by Hugo Greenback's Experimenter Publishing. And they played with like Buck Rogers more, didn't they? Too? Yeah, there was some Buck so. Rogers in there for sure. Amazing has been running for ninety one years on and off. I mean. Even that series within the 80s where Steven Spielberg did them. That's right. And it, these stories, in 2020, they got a, there, there's a one-season, like, you know, reboot of Amazing Stories. Oh, I, also, we, we talked about this insofar as um, uh, Hollywood Vintage. Mm-hmm. Like, they, you can find some older smart. weird tales and amazing stories and all sorts of stuff, like, you know, Asimov old serials and stuff like that, like Bradbury stuff, all sparse throughout the store. So on 28th and Sandy, uh, Northeast Sandy in Portland, check mm-hmm. out Hollywood Vintage. Not only for that, but a bunch of other cool stuff. Yeah, like Dan, if you're still the projectionist, fuck you up. No, fuck you up, Dan. Fuck you up, Dan. You know why? <laughs> I got to be here with my boy Robert, so I <laughs> fuck you up. He doesn't know. No, no, that's right. Dan, Dan probably fired me for a good reason, but nice. Well, hey, sometimes you get fired for good reason. I used to be a projectionist for movie theaters. Nice, and then that that um technology changed so it became literally a disc well spe- yeah so now speaking of technology that's God. i mean you know like societal development is largely based on technology so if we're looking at like how one talks to the other um regarding commentary on society there's a science fiction novel by russian author alexei tolstoy we all know tolstoy okay. it's called alita or the decline of most yeah. from 19- and they made that into a movie yeah they did yeah that one's pretty nice battle angel right 
Uh, no, well, sure. that's <laughs> no. There's Alita as a movie. I think well, I want to yes, say Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's one of the few movies that has like 100 percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Is that right? Yeah, like um, even when we talk about the toys, Metropolis doesn't even have 100 percent of Rotten. Tomatoes. It's close, but The Lost World, mm. which comes out that same decade, a lot of people want to talk about Metropolis being the granddaddy of sci-fi, and I think it's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. I mean, it depends on what you consider science fiction. If it's hard sci-fi by going into space and using lasers, robots. Or the idea that, like, dinosaurs on a different place could still exist. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, it, paleontology is a science. Yeah. And so I, and I, there's a fiction we see, man. That one's, it's just a funner one to watch, too, because Metropolis, I think that, like, maybe I have a different appreciation for it than a lot of your average viewer will. Because I read the book and went, oh, look at all this sweet satanic shit in here. Mm. Because there's a lot, bro. There's, it's all witchcrafty. Um, in the movie, like we were mentioning, you only sacrifice some uh, workers to Moloch. But in the book, it's like, nah, there's like way more demons. Gotcha. And like the book talks about like, um, who's that fool? Um, I mean, the Invisible Man, H.G. Wells. Oh, yeah. Right? He fucking hated Metropolis because, like, what's it about? This movie means nothing. It doesn't say nothing in this movie. And he was very public talking about how this movie didn't mean shit. And it was because he didn't read the book, but he shouldn't have to. When you take one piece of art as it is, what he was looking at, he's like, there's not saying anything. Well, H.G. Right. Wells is from, like, kind of the a little bit of the previous guard. Like, I, I can't believe I didn't talk about Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World in the yeah. in the Dude, lead up to the night. That's why I mentioned the music, too, with those. Yes. Because, oh, like, well, the, the Theremin. The Theremin, yeah. yeah it came out, right. but, like, when you watch the, the Lost World, they did not use the Theremin. They went, hey, what is the most popular big budget orchestra sounds? Mm. So you watch this movie that is so disjointed. Because, and, and it's 100% of rock tomatoes to this day. But, like, you watch it, and the music is just bigger than life, orchestra, powerful. And the movie's like, yeah, you got to go talk to this fucking reporter over here and watch out. Last time I sent her, I got to talk to the reporter, he beat five of them up. And I was like, the 20s? They didn't give a shit. That's the first sentence in the movie. I sent five dudes to talk to this guy, and he, this adventurer beat the shit out of all five of my reporters. And it's a way to build up to how badass this adventure is before he goes to the Lost World. So let's talk a little bit about the music because oh, this is still the era of the silent movie where musical scores help drive forward the scene and evoke emotions. But there's a shift from traditional orchestral flurries like we were talking about in the Lost World to more experimental, dare I say, weird stuff, right, of the times. Mm -hmm. Because the theremin was invented in 1919 and used in various ways ever since. You kind of, kind of a revival in the 60s and 70s with weird stuff, you know, and production. But there are a lot of instances of people experimenting with tubes and all sorts of other oh, sound yeah. effects and science fiction. And Warming in the Moon is is kind of like that. Mm, I think yeah. that's the Fritz Lang's next movie. Actually. Yes, it is. And there's some stuff. Yeah, Frau du Is it? Yeah, whatever it is. Whatever. Yeah, I, I, I thought that saw that there was some shit that was supposed to be in Metropolis that ended up getting taken over into that one. Because, like, the yes. only Metropolis um, in the book has to do with, like, the dude leaving Earth and thereby escaping his father's, like, control oh. and shit like that. And so that... I don't get into that in the... Yeah, so they didn't do that in the movie, but that concept is re-explored, is what I, I think I'm remembering. Huh. I, I know I have to pick the up theremin, a novelization yeah. of it. What I liked was that the theremin wasn't necessarily used all the time in the 20s. No, no. Fact, it just, yeah. just happened to be... Because you watch, like, The Lost World, when you're watching, it's so... The music is just so 
powerful. Different uh, than what's happening on screen. Yeah. And it kind of becomes funny. Like, from nowhere used to now, mm. like, I can only imagine a 20s audience going in like, wow, I'm really, like, blown away by the music and all this stuff. But, like, the, what's happening on screen is not this. Do you think they all have had an orchestra? Because they, they had an orchestra in a lot of theater. Houses, well, that's exactly right? so. And I, I wonder if they had people, like, do variations on a theme. Because uh, it's cheaper. Speaking of like audio, we have to talk about radio too. Oh, yeah. Because especially since in 1920, Westinghouse, yeah. one of the leading radio manufacturers, had an idea for selling more radios, which was programming. Radio began as a one to one method of communication, like with ham radio. So this was like a pretty novel idea. There was a guy named Dr. Frank uh, Conrad, who was a Pittsburgh area ham operator with lots of connections. And he frequently played records over the airwaves for the benefit of his friends. This was just the sort of thing that Westinghouse had in mind and asked Conrad to help set up a, a regularly being transmitted station in Pittsburgh. So on November 2nd, 1920, station KDKA made the nation's first actual commercial broadcast, which was a term that was coined by Conrad himself. Mm -hmm. So they chose that date because it was an election day and the power of the radio was proven when people could hear the results of the Harding-Cox presidential race. You remember that one, right? Yeah. Or, well, it's uh, yeah. Harding, of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, it has about when it's first so radio. Is it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, back when your social security number was one. When I first started comp. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it turns out the KDK was a huge hit, inspiring other companies to take up broadcasting. And in four years, there were 600 commercial stations around the country. So by the mid-1920s, people were so thirsty for content. So like that's where you have these old-school like quartets with one guy off in the corner, be like, doing like with yeah. a weird, you know, so he's got us on a good path. Yeah. Is that, yeah, on the fly. That makes a lot of sense why you would have like the inception things like a theremin where yeah. one person could create like a kaleidoscope of sounds. Totally. Because it's the re the need for it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're, they're just, they're yeah, rather the twice. It's definitely a hungry time. And, and a thirsty time. Well, yeah, we know that. <laughs> and that's probably why. Yeah. That's probably because of prohibition and things like that. There was probably a need for some other type of entertainment or escapism yeah. for the public. Well, and yeah. also uh, very, a very white decade. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of black representation uh, in science fiction. No, not that we've carried over. No, or no, or at least that have like remained in the the lexicon of what we can what is considered important, or at least on like a, a whitewashed textbook version of what's considered important for the decade, uh, because it, that's to to say that it doesn't exist would be to be ignorant and all. But oh, definitely, I I'm going to mess up the name, but I want to say Zora Hilston, maybe, and I'm I'm probably incorrect here, but like I um, mean. She was a journalist in around that same time, and she would write about, like, um, Haitian zombie period. Oh, Zora Hurston. Yeah. Oh, and cool. so, uh, I'll have to look into her. Yeah, I have a book from her, and it was, like, very terrifying, but very well-researched. And it was just one of those, like, yeah, that was an angle of, like, oh, this isn't something that's being represented during this time, but it was, I was hungry to know more. Oh, I've you heard know. of this novel. I think They're over a watching God. Yeah. I think even Elsewhere was already it's not her. Somebody to look into. Yeah. I, like I'm I'm like obviously white and look like the problem. You are. <laughs> my my grandpa is a nineteen seventeen immigrant from Ireland. Okay. And so like So also white. Very white and okay. very Catholic or very whiter. Dicky. Easy POS real big time. But <laughs> um, you know, like he would always talk about, oh, you should just blow up this British school full of children and one time. Sure. Right. But it was because of bring. He would bring like stories I never heard of, like bean cheese and shit. 
So like I got to learn about mythology from a young age that I never would have considered. Interesting. And that, because my grandpa probably was like, ah, this lady will fucking scream at you and you'll all die. And what? That's weird. Right? And so entry lore is super interesting, actually. I always thought it was just some like bullshit husband stuff. You're like, oh, your grandma's going to scream at me. And I don't know. Of course. I'll be wife. Yeah, of course. So, because I haven't seen a, I haven't had a lot of examples of healthy relationships. Probably from my grandpa on down. Other than that. You said said 10 brothers and sisters? Yeah, I got 10 brothers and sisters. All but one of my brothers has kids. We got a lot of grandkids. So right on. Well, lots. Alex, so well, you, somebody will take care of you. I guess that's the whole point. Trust. Yeah. So, uh, Robert, what's coming up in your comedy schedule? Well, to be honest, this is the first thing I've been booked on in about a year. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, well, I had to have you. And oh well, I'm, <laughs> I was about to be on here and edit anything on there that doesn't fit. I know I tend to ramble. I just okay. love sharing. Sure. And I can get hyped up. Um, I, I blame myself for not being on a lot of shows. I just haven't been out. You know, post COVID, there was a lot. It was restarting and running yeah. out. Well, a lot of people had done that, man. Absolutely. And this whole zone changed. Like to be honest, like when I when I started looking out, like all right, what's what's opening and who's running shows? Where are the mics? All different people than like it was three yeah. or four when when kind of shit shut down. So it was like learning who is where and like getting that same um, trust because they're like oh old white dude are you gonna talk to joe rogan that's when you come in here they're like, no, no, that's cool you never know you shoot from the hip being an old yeah. white guy might be some joe rogan might be some fucking george carlin you never know it's like but, hey my my inspiration is always robert schimmel that's okay that's my that's good ins- that's good inspiration and that's good i hate to put it back to joe rogan but he married his daughter Joe so, Rogan did? Joe Rogan married Robert Schimmel's daughter. Oh, oh. Something like her or not. Okay. Well, <laughs> I didn't mean to go tie it back in him, but I'm I think Robert Schimmel I really liked. Yeah. He was an older dude that started this as an older guy. And I, I started comedy at 37, oh, well. same year that he did. Oh. So he was just my idol of going, okay, you can maybe possibly start this as an older person. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, that's the young number around me. <laughs> Life is not over at 40. Oh, and you're you're proof positive of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, man. Uh, well, Robert, thanks again for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Yeah. Was, cool, man. You know, I loved looking at Metropolis and then reminding myself about just how kind of satanic it was, you know, and like, like I remembered it one way and then going, oh, yeah. Do you, do you have a novelization of it? Can I borrow Um, I do have a novelization. I, pro- I could bring it to a show. Sick. Yes, and I, I love getting old books, man. I got like old King and Yellow from Robert Chambers, old stuff like that. All right. I'm I'm big in that. I wanted my cult library so when people come over, like, oh, yeah. Robert's one of those weird Lovecraft guys. But the FBI brushed your your door down, yeah. Oh yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that's what I definitely wanted was the FBI. I think like, why did you write this? Like, the truth must be out there. You know? So yeah, you you open like you pull a book back and like a manifesto rolls out. Like I wanted to write like a fake. A cult book, and then just like have it be insane. They just start taking pisses on it for like six years straight. So it reeked. Yeah, you know, just it, like it, it was reprehensible. It was old, and then like bury it in the house before we sell it. So then the new people when they bulldoze it, they're like, "What the fuck's this?" In a box here, and they open the box. Hey, it's a book. It smells like shit. I tell you what, in this book, it doesn't belong to Elister yeah. Kelly. Well, you're like, this is the Evil Dead, which is about to come out again. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, one. Nice. But yeah, thanks, man. Ring some absolutely on the show. Yeah. Night of Twenties, East Lovecraft. Yeah, big, big racist, but hey, 
you can like what he made and hate him. It's allowed. That's you true. Hate people without hating what they made up. If you're able to separate the art from the artist, and the art is is worth it and good enough, then I can listen to R. Kelly without thinking about all the little kids he beat on. I don't know that I can do that, but if <laughs> you can, more power to you. It's probably because I loved Lovecraft. I had a little bit of training. I was ready. I was I, <laughs> As far as we know, Lovecraft didn't pee on anybody. As far as we know, non-consensually. So. Nah, it would have been, he would have been made some story about it like us because of the great old, the, the deep old, and so wanted me to pee on them. So they didn't made with us. And Yes, always a backstory. He would have made a great Scientologist. Yeah, well, I'll <laughs> save that for the 50s and Alan Hubbard. All right, well, let's go hit this growler swipe. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thanks a lot, guys. Cool. All right. See ya. See ya. Always an interesting time linking up with Robert. Make sure to check out his published works if you're the caliber of nerd that truly enjoys D&D. If only it were set on a spaceship or distant world of some kind. Shifting gears in this boat of a Duesenberg, let's head on down to the speakeasy in Charleston our way through some facts about the sci-fi novels and films that helped define the golden decade. Sci-fi coming out of the late 19th and early 20th centuries was looking very white and very male-dominated, as did the vast majority of the media coming out of the time in general. Thankfully, that's changed significantly over the last hundred years, largely starting with a slew of social changes that were brought about at the turn of the decade. The 1920s saw the emergence of jazz culture and the Harlem Renaissance, which was an intellectual and cultural revival of African-American music, dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, politics, and scholarship centered in Harlem, Manhattan, New York City, spanning the 1920s and 1930s. Along with that cultural boom came works of speculative and science fiction by black authors who had more access than ever before to the means of producing media. There are earlier examples of sci-fi written by black authors like Of One Blood in 1902 by the prolific writer and editor Pauline Hopkins, describing the discovery of a hidden civilization with advanced technology in Ethiopia, which is often credited as the first lost race novel by an African-American author. However, W.E.B. Dubois' 1920s story, The Comet, in which only a black man and a white woman survive an apocalyptic event, is the first work of post-apocalyptic fiction in which African Americans appear as subjects, and is one of the earliest true examples of black-written sci-fi. George Schuyler, the noted conservative U.S. critic and writer, published several works of speculative fiction, more so in the 1930s, using the framework of pulp fiction to explore racial conflict. Published in the Pittsburgh Courier, Schuyler's serials lampoon the talented 10th, criticize colorism, and explore double consciousness, the concept of the psychological challenge African Americans experience of, quote, looking at oneself through the eyes of a racist white society and measuring oneself by the means of a nation that looked back in contempt, as described by Webb Dubois. By the 1920s, speculative fiction was also published by African writers. In South Africa, the popular 1920 novel Shaka, written in Sotho by Thomas Mofolo, presented a magical realist account of the life of the Sulu king, Shaka. We talked about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the previous Decade Dive episode as being one of the earliest popular examples of science fiction, which is undoubtedly true. However, there were other important science fiction works that led up to the 1920s that set the scene for a more progressive societal landscape with the emergence and conclusion of first-wave feminism. For instance, Charlotte Perkins Gilman explores and critiques the expectations of women and men by creating a single-sex world in Herland, published in 1915, possibly the most well-known of the early feminist science fiction and utopian novels. 
In the utopian novel Beatrice the 16th from 1909, transgender writer Irene Clyde creates a world where gender is no longer recognized and the story itself is told without the use of gendered nouns. During the 1920s and 1930s, many popular pulp science fiction magazines exaggerated views of masculinity and featured portrayals of women that were perceived as sexist. These views would be subtly satirized by Stella Gibbons in Cold Comfort Farm from 1932 and much later by Margaret Atwood in The Blind Assassin in 2000. However, as early as 1920, writers such as Gertrude Barrows Bennett, who wrote Claimed in 1920, and Claire Winger Harris, who wrote The Runaway World in 1926, published science fiction stories written from female perspectives and occasionally dealt with gender and sexuality-based topics, both of which were highly taboo at the time. Getting back to the white fellas, other important works from the decade include pulp publications like Amazing Stories, which is an American science fiction magazine launched in April of 1926 by Hugo Gernsback's Experimenter Publishing. It was the first magazine devoted solely to science fiction. Science fiction stories had made regular appearances in other magazines, including some published by original editor Hugo Gernsback, but Amazing helped define and launch a new genre of pulp fiction. As of 2023, Amazing has been published, with some interruptions, for 97 years going through a half dozen owners and many editors as it struggled to be profitable. Initially, the magazine focused on reprints. The original story was The Man from the Atom by G. Peyton Wurtenbaker in the May 1926 issue. Eventually, there was an enthusiastic readership for scientifiction. The term science fiction hadn't quite been coined yet, and in 1927 started a discussion section and issued Amazing Stories Annual, which eventually became a quarterly release. We'll pick back up with Amazing Stories in the 1930s when things start to get a little bit more interesting with the stories and ideas that are coming out of that magazine. Now, one novel I'd like to note in particular is Alita, or The Decline of Mars, which is a 1923 science fiction novel by Russian author Alexei Tolstoy. An engineer, Mstislav Sergeyevich Lost, designs and constructs a revolutionary pulse detonation rocket and decides to set course for Mars. Looking for a companion for the travel, he finally leaves Earth with a retired soldier, Alexei Gusev. Arriving on Mars, they discover that the planet is inhabited by an advanced civilization. However, the gap between the ruling class and the workers is very strong and reminiscent of early capitalism, with workers living in underground corridors near their machines. Later in the novel, it is explained that Martians are descendants of both local races and the Atlanteans who came there after the sinking of their home continent. Here, Tolstoy was inspired by Helena Blavatsky's books. Mars is now ruled by engineers, but not all is well. While speaking before an assembly, their leader, Toskob, says that the city must be destroyed to ease the fall of Mars. Alida, Toskob's beautiful daughter and the princess of Mars, later reveals to Los that the planet is dying, that the polar ice caps are not melting as they once did, and the planet is facing an environmental catastrophe. While the adventurous Gusev takes the lead of a popular uprising against the ruler, the more intellectual Los becomes enamored with Alida. When the rebellion is crushed, Gusev and Los are forced to flee Mars and eventually make it back to Earth. The trip is prolonged with the effects of high speed and time dilation resulting in a loss of over three years. The exact fate of Alida herself is unknown, but it is hinted that she actually survived since Los receives radio messages from Mars mentioning his name.
The novel was adapted in the Soviet Union to silent film under the same title shot by Yakov Protazanov in 1924 and by Hungarian director Andros Rajnai in 1980. Andrija Marjevic and Krezimir Kovacic in Yugoslavia adapted it into a comic published from 1935 to 1936 titled Lubyevnika Izmarza. The reason I bring this particular piece up is because it exemplifies the way that authors of the time were integrating political and social ideologies into their pieces of fiction. Stories became less of an overt moral tale and instead opted for layered meaning and allegory to convey themes. We also can't move on without mentioning the classic sci-fi film Metropolis by Fritz Lang and Thea von Harbaugh, but I will leave it as just a mention because we did an entire episode on that film with comedian Dennis Cruz. You can check out episode 34 of Science Factual on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for the full rundown on that classic. Radio, of course, was incredibly important to the dissemination of information, and the 1920s saw a boom of programming being developed as the medium changed over from hobbyist to a household staple. But the 1930s truly saw the rise of science fiction and radio, so we'll hold off until the next decade dive to jump into things like Orson Welles' broadcast of The War of the Worlds. All in all, the times of a century ago are fascinating for a number of reasons. Technological developments, societal shifts, and the media that came out of a decade that found itself somewhere between the rapidly decaying old world and the burgeoning modern world we are more familiar with today. Speaking of the modern world, I'd like to thank my sources for this week's episode, including Old Time Radio Catalog at otrcat.com, sciencehistory.org, and of course wikipedia.com doing most of the heavy lifting for this episode. Because if it's on Wikipedia, you know it was uploaded by a moonshiner in the throes of an ethanol-induced blackout. Next week's episode brings us back to the 2020s with a look at the Matrix franchise. So weird to say that now instead of the trilogy, being that Resurrections came out in 2021. But we'll be looking at the original three films and Animatrix as well with guest comedian Corey Wilson. We met up at the Arrowwood Comedy Open Mic to put in some reps and chat about the iconic franchise. You can catch that episode airing Tuesday, March 7th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Download the free Shady Pines Radio app for Android or iOS. You can also visit us online 24 hours a day at ShadyPinesRadio.com for amazing content from Portland and beyond. For all of your comedy wants and desires here in Portland, make sure to check out LaughsPDX.com for up-to-date information on shows, mics, and all things comedy in Rip City. Like the Rip City Comedy Festival, for instance, which debuts May 4th through the 6th right here in Portland. So definitely check out RipCityComedyFest.com for dates and tickets to see the funniest people from the Pacific Northwest and around the world. This has been a fun trip back in time and all, but for a number of reasons, I think I like it a bit better in the 2020s. So thanks for coming with us. And until the next decade dive, live long and prosper, my fellow nerds. Oh, and enjoy this set from Robert Gresham. Hey everybody, how we doing? Look at all of you out on a Tuesday. Fuck yeah! So I'm a dad, yeah, just like Josh, but I got three kids. Yeah, they're all locked in my basement right now. Yeah, don't worry, it's fine. They got fucking Wi-Fi and Roblox down there. Yeah, they won't even know I'm gone. Fucking Roblox. 
I don't know if you know what this is, man. I tried to get my daughter, like, My Little Ponies for Christmas. But all want, she wanted was uh, more Robux so she could buy a new chainsaw to kill Piggy. <laughs> which is the same thing I wanted during all the protests, so... Oh, yeah, she takes after me. Yeah. I love my daughter. I really do. But now that she's six, I'm convinced that Karens are born and not made. Yeah. Because she is a bitch, man. And I keep giving her food, like just keeping her alive. Yeah, it's my fault. I already want to apologize to everybody she's going to call the cops on later. Yeah, you know who you are out there. Yeah, we were walking to get pizza the other day, passed by this uh, hobo crafting a pop can pipe. And she just looked at him and was like, hey, if you're poor, you can go get a job. (laughs) Six. I was like, Emily, you don't tell hobos to just go get a job. He doesn't even have pants on. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you. She definitely gives no shits about parental authority at all. Like to her, I'm just a bank teller. Her mom's a janitor. And she wants to talk to our manager. Yeah. She's wonderful. Tried to punish her the other day, you know, send her to her room for talking back. But she was like screaming as she stomped up there. Well, I'm glad they canceled Cowboy Bebop. Just going right for the heart, you know? Things you love. So her mom tried to punish her, take Roblox away a little while, you know? That didn't work. She stomped away and was like, well, when I grow up, I'm going to teach my kids to hate Jewish people. (laughs) Yeah. Turns out she's not Karen, she's Eva Braun. (laughs) Yeah, she's a fun one, though, I'll tell you. Definitely. Got an uh, autistic son. Eight-year-old, you know, he's uh, non-verbal, violent, and always naked. Yeah. So he's my favorite. Yeah. I'll tell you, raising an autistic child, not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Right now, his favorite things are consecutive scalding showers. And pinching people's nipples. Yeah. It's like I live with a wet mime high on ecstasy. Yeah. And that shower situation, I'll tell you, it's really getting out of hand. Nine times out of ten when I go in there to use it, all the hot water's gone. Tenth time, there's poop in there. Just covering our like carefully lined up toothbrushes. Yeah. tell you when my son was three running around butt naked it's pretty cute adorable almost you know now that he's eight just charging at you with an eight-year-old heart on yeah it's fucking hilarious i'll tell you i can't wait till he's 15 yeah it's gonna be uh epic Yeah, my son, I love him to death, you know. 
Sometimes my daughter will come up to me though and she'll be like, Daddy, I think you uh, love Jason more than you love me. You know, you give him way more attention. And I'm like, well, honey, of course I love him, you anti-Semite. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> She's great, though. I tell you. I really can't wait to find out what she does when she's like 16, 17. Just crashing my car into stuff, you know? Stealing more of my money. Just like I'd do to my mom. Yeah, when she did that, uh, I'll teach my kids to hate Jewish people thing. I was like, shit, that, you know, as a parent, I'm like, that can't stand. I gotta, I gotta do something about that. So I'm like, Emily, you're getting a spanking. And she's like, where? On my butt, daddy? <laughs> yeah, I didn't answer fast enough either. So she pulled her panties down. She's like, how about now, daddy? I was like, now I can't ever spank you again. Or your mom. All right, thanks everybody. I've been Robert Gresham. Make sure to check out Adam's show, Still Hoping on Saturday.